Is God dead? In a famous article in the 1966 edition of Time magazine, that question was posed because of the growth of communism in the world, which is built upon a Marxist foundation of atheism, because of the decline of mainline denominations in the United States. Time magazine wanted to know, is God dead? Or at the very least, is belief in God dying? Well, there was a group of people, a nation, that thousands of years ago had a very similar thought. Is the God of the Hebrews dead? And we're going to see God give a resounding answer to that question in our text this morning. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5 as we continue our study. This Old Testament book, 1 Samuel chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1. By the way, marvelous singing this morning. Sang like you believed what you were singing. Amen? That's good stuff. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off. On the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to to express our dependence upon you, and we pause to ask for your help. Holy Spirit of God, would you move in this moment? Would you take your word and apply it to our lives? Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the timeless truths of Scripture? We might consider your truth, and we might, Lord, have a desire to align ourselves with your truth. So, Lord, just have your way in this place today, would you move with might and with power? Or to echo what Joey just prayed, may you be glorified in this place. It's all about you. And I ask you to establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we began our study in the book of 1 Samuel, we saw that the setting of this book was the end of the period known as the time of the judges, which was a time of lawlessness and rebellion among the people of Israel because in the last verse of the book of Judges, the Bible says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was complete disregard for God. 
complete disregard for his commandments. Everyone was doing their own thing. It was a, a period of great spiritual darkness. And yet God was not through with his people. God wanted to lead them out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. He wanted to protect them and preserve them so he could one day send a Messiah through them to die for the sins of humanity. And so God begins to intervene in the affairs of his nation. He raises up a new leader, a prophet named Samuel. But before Samuel can take the reins of leadership, he has to remove the old leadership. So we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4 that God uh, defeated the nation of Israel and uh, Hophni and Phinehas died in that battle with the Philistines on the same day. They were the the priest of Israel, the high priest Eli, died when he heard the news. And so now the, 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 the stage is set for Samuel to take his place as a prophet among the people of God. But something interesting happens. Samuel's mentioned at the very beginning of chapter 4, but we don't see his name again until chapter 7. The, the scene shifts and the story begins to revolve around the Ark of the Covenant, which was taken in battle by the Philistines from the Israelites. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a very important piece of furniture that God commanded Moses to have built. It was a, a box that was covered in gold, and it was placed in the temple in a room called the Holy of Holies. And this box had a lid called the mercy seat on top of it, and once a year, the high priest of Israel would go into that Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was placed and would go with the blood of slain animals and would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. This was an uh, elaborate process which taught the people of God that they were sinners and they could not approach God without the shedding of blood. The, the shedding of blood of an innocent animal on behalf of the guilty people uh, reminded them that God was one day going to send a Messiah who would, though innocent, die for the sins of humanity. And so the high priest would go into the Ark of the Covenant. When God would make his presence known among his people, when he would manifest his presence, he would center his presence on the Ark. And so the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the, the presence of God, the power of God, the purification of God, all of that. And this Ark was taken in the battle by the Israelites. They thought if they had the Ark, God would surely give them victory, even though they had disregarded him and disobeyed him. But God allowed the Philistines to overthrow the Israelites, and he allowed them to capture the Ark. Now... Surely in the minds of the Philistines, they thought, well, this God of the Hebrews, there's not much to him. Maybe he's not real. Or maybe he's dead. Or maybe he's just not really powerful. And they triumphantly brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Ashdod, one of the major five cities among the nation of Philistia. And so as we see the story unfold and we see God respond to the Philistines, we're going to see four aspects of God's nature emerge. I want you to see these four aspects, and, and I want us to think about these four uh, characteristics of God that we see in the text. First of all, I want you and I to see the supremacy of God. The supremacy of God. The preeminence of God, if you will. Look what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now we see, as we see the story unfold, that the Philistines were guilty of three major sins. The first sin that they were guilty of was idolatry. 
they bring the ark to the house or the temple of Dagon. Now, who's Dagon? Dagon was a god that they worshipped. They built a temple for him, and they fashioned a god with their own hands, and they would worship Dagon in that temple. Uh, years ago, uh, scholars believed that Dagon was connected with fish. They used to call Dagon the fish god. In recent days, there's been some scholarly debate over whether Dagon was the fish god or maybe the god of wheat. There's some discussion on that. But undoubtedly, the worship of Dagon was tied to their belief that if they appeased this god, God would give them fertility as a people and God would give them a great harvest of their crops. And so they would worship this god named Dagon, who is a false god, not a real god. They had to fashion this god with their own hands. So we see that the, the people of uh, Philistia were pagan worshipers. They worshipped a false god. It was one of their pantheon of gods. And they were guilty of idolatry. You say, Wade, well, good thing we don't have to deal with that anymore. Good thing we don't have to deal with idolatry anymore in our culture. Can I just tell you, idolatry is alive and well. Idolatry is when someone worships anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. It's, idolatry is when, when someone places on their priority list something higher than the one true God. And idolatry is alive and well. We see people worshiping money in our culture. We see people worshiping celebrity in our culture. We see people worshiping the American dream in our culture. And when we worship anything or anyone other than God, those things are idols and they capture our hearts and lead us down roads that will end in destruction. And the Philistines were guilty of idolatry. Secondly, they were guilty of pride. Without question, the Philistines believed that their god, Dagon, was probably more powerful than the god of the Hebrews. I mean, they had a great victory over the Hebrew people. They even took the ark of God as a spoil of war. Can you imagine the pride uh, that the, the Philistine army returned with? They were carrying this great treasure of the Hebrew. Hey, we captured the ark. We defeated thousands of the Hebrew people. Our gods have given us great victory over this god of the Hebrews. There was pride there. And because of this victory, the Philistines believed that the God of Israel had been completely conquered. They may have even thought that God was dead or that God was just weak. They were prideful. But third, these Philistines were guilty of syncretism. Syncretism, which is an interesting word and it's an important word. Syncretism is the blending together of two things that don't go together. Syncretism, used in a religious sense, is when people take two religious ideas or many religious ideas that are at odds with one another, but then they bring them together and form them into their own religion or their own belief system. That's what they were doing here. They bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple and they set it by Dagon. Now, who knows what they plan to do? Are they going to maybe uh, give a nod of the head to the God of the Hebrews as they come and worship Dagon? We, we don't know, but we know in chapter 6 when they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel... They send these sacrifices to appease the God of Israel. They're saying, well, listen, we want to appease him, and, and we don't know much about him, but we want to be on his side, and we don't want him to judge us any longer. So we see them carrying out these rituals of worship for the God of Israel. Now, if they were worshiping the God of Israel, and they stopped worshiping their false gods, that would be good. But they worship the God of Israel while they continue to worship their false gods. As a matter of fact, a matter of fact years later, you can read about this in 
1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 10, we see the Philistines still worshiping Dagon, still worshiping their false gods. So we see there a blending of religions, which is very common in that day. They would take this god and that god and this idea and that idea, and they would blend it together into their own religious system. That's called syncretism, and it is, it is dangerous. And can I tell you this? Syncretism is still alive and well in our culture today. People take from different religions the best ideas, the things that they like the best, and they kind of they mash them all together into their own religion, their own worldview, and, and, and they don't believe in one certain thing or one certain way or any exclusive. They just want to take the, the best from each religious system or worldview and just, and just kind of push it all together and, and, and believe in that. Syncretism. The Philistines were guilty of it. So how does God respond to their idolatry? And how does God respond to their pride? And how does God respond to their syncretism? Well, first of all, we see that God shows them the futility of idolatry. He shows them how silly it is to worship an idol. Look what happens in verse 2. It says, The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, so they took Dagon and set him in his place again. This is almost humorous. The ark of the God, which represents the one true God, is there in the, the temple of Dagon. Dagon, who they, they formed and fashioned with their own hands, an idol. They have it on a pedestal. They come in the next morning. This idol, this Dagon, is face first before the ark, symbolically paying homage to the one true God. And so look what happens next. They have to take him, and they have to set their God back on the pedestal. Isn't that funny? They're worshiping a God that they had to help. I mean, how ridiculous is that? They had to make him, first of all, and then when he fell down, they had to help him back up. Do you want to worship a God that you have to help? Do you want to have to worship a God that's so weak he can't even get himself back up on the pedestal? They were helping their God, and that's in direct contrast to the God of Israel. What we see happening in chapters 5 and 6 is God not needing any help. God gets the ark back to Israel with no help. He takes care of it. There, there's no rescue party sent from the Israelites. God takes care of it himself. Do you see the contrast? Idols are made with human hands, and we have to help them out. Our God is the one true God. He needs no help. We need his help, right? So God shows them the futility of idolatry. And then God pummels their pride. It gets even more humorous. Look in the next verse. Verse 4. They arose early the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So they walk back in the next day. They had put Dagon back on his pedestal. The next day, he's back on his, on his face, and his head's cut off, and his hands are cut off. I mean, God is, is really getting their attention. He's destroying their pride. I mean, as they were marching back to, to Philistia with the Ark of the Covenant, they were probably thinking, our gods are more powerful than the God of the Hebrews. But now they're looking and saying, maybe we were wrong on that. Maybe our gods are not more powerful because our God has his hands cut off and his head cut off. God is pummeling their pride as he shows them the futility of idolatry. And then third, 
God shatters their syncretism. He shatters their syncretism. It says, Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor all enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon to this day. It said, look in verse 7. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So what do they do? Listen, they take the ark of the covenant out of the house of Dagon and send it somewhere else. God is showing them, I will not be worshipped alongside Dagon. You're not going to come in and pay me homage and then pay Dagon homage. I'm the one true God, and God shatters their syncretism. They get the ark out of that temple of Dagon. He's not going to be blended together with this fertility God that they worshipped. And so we see in this passage the supremacy of God. That there is one true God, and He is greater and stronger than any other idea, any other concept of religion. He is the one true God, the supremacy of God, the greatness of God. But here's the second thing I want you to see. We see the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Not only does God show them their futility for worshiping idols, God judges them for worshiping idols. Idol worship is serious business because God's the only one that deserves worship. And so God judges them for their idolatry by sending a mighty plague. Look what it says in verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Now, we don't know exactly what's happening here, what kind of plague this is. Over in chapter 6, when the Philistines, we'll see this in a moment, send the ark back, they, they form golden tumors. I bet that was attractive. Golden tumors and golden mice uh, back with the ark as they send it back to Israel in recognition of the plague. So probably what's happening here is something like the bubonic plague, which you heard of in the Middle Ages, which killed thousands and thousands of people. It was a, a disease that was spread through mice. It caused tumors in the neck and tumors in the armpits and tumors in the groin area. And that's probably something that is kind of a bubonic-type plague happening here. And God sends this plague and say, wait, why is, why is he doing this? Look what it says in verse, verse uh, 7. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. They recognize there's something connected with their worship of Dagon that's causing this plague. You see, God judges the Philistines for their idolatry. He judges them for worshiping a false God and not worshiping the one true God. And I want you to see that God's judgment is, is thorough and terrifying. Look in verse 8. They sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel around. And after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion. He smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. Now look at this next phrase. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Do you notice how devastating this judgment is 
sending a plague. People are dying. Other people that aren't dying are, are getting these tumors, and they're terrified. It says there in verse 11, there's a deadly confusion throughout the city. They send it over here and over here and over there, and everywhere the ark goes, God sends judgment. God's judgment is thorough and terrifying. But here's what ought to get our attention this morning. This is just a small glimpse into the power of God's hand in judgment. Because here's what I want you to to grasp hold of this morning. People that do not come to know the one true God through Jesus Christ will experience God's terrifying, devastating judgment. Because if we don't worship the one true God through Jesus Christ, we're worshiping something else. And that something else is an idol. And if we worship idols and die in that condition, we will be judged for our idolatry. We will be judged for not worshiping the one true God who has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and judgment will be forever. It will be for eternity in that awful place called hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a lake of fire. This picture of judgment is just a, is just a, a glimpse, a foreshadowing of how devastating God's judgment really is. When you read a passage like this, you ought to say, I don't want to fall under God's hand of judgment. I want to worship Him and worship Him alone. A passage like this ought to get you to to run to Jesus, the only escape, the only refuge from judgment. And so we see the judgment of God. This is a warning to idol worshipers today. It's a warning to people that, that reject Jesus Christ and keep the one true God at arm's length. And do not give him the worship and honor that he is due. The judgment of God. Third, I want you to see the reality of God. It gets really interesting in chapter 6. The reality of God. God reveals himself to the people of Philistia. We see the people design a test to see if the entire episode was coincidence or a supernatural act of God. They want to know, okay, is the, the timing of the plague... Uh, and the ark being here, just coincidental, or is this really God at work? So they want to put God to the test. Look what happens in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his... Hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What shall the guilt offering which we uh, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? They said, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on all your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and, the, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. Why then do you Harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. When he had severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? Now, therefore, take and prepare a new cart. And so their game plan is we're going to send the ark back and we're going to send it with some gifts. We're going to make some golden tumors, five of them, to represent the five great cities, the five lords of the Philistia, and five mice. Now, can you imagine being the craftsman that got that order? Hey, we need you to make some golden tumors. 
and, uh, and, 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 some, and some golden mice. But that was a tr- a, really a sight to see. But look what they say in verse 7. Now therefore, take and prepare a new cart. Here's the test they're going to put God to. And two milch cows on which there has never been a yoke, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch. If it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So they want to know, is this really God judging us because we have the ark? Or is this all coincidence? So here's the test. Get two cows that never had a yoke on them. Put a yoke on them. It's going to make it difficult. And get two cows that have calves, that are taking care of calves, nursing their calves. Now, if you uh, have ever been around cattle much, you know that every instinct of a uh, mother cow is to stay with her calves. And so the test is this. If these cows leave their calves behind... If they go in a direction other than where their calves are, we know this is something supernatural. Because in, in the natural, their instinct is to run to their calves. So if they go away from their calves, this must really be God at work. They're putting God to the test. They want to say, God, are you real? Are you alive? Is this really your hand? What does God do? If you look there in your notes, God graciously gives them evidence of his existence. Look what it says in verse 10. Then the men did so and took two milch cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors and the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right or to the left and the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. What happens here? The cows walk away from their calves They take this cart with the Ark of the Covenant and the five golden tumors and the five mice back to the territory of Israel. And the Philistines are following along, watching this happen. In other words, they say, is this really God or is this coincidence? And God shows them, this is really me. Now let me tell you what I love about this. Earlier on in 1 Samuel in chapter 2, God sends an unnamed prophet to speak to Eli and tell him judgment is coming to his household. Later on, chapter 7, we'll say this next week, God raises up Samuel to speak to his people on his behalf, another prophet of God. But here in chapter 6, God speaks through cows. I love it. God is, is showing them that he is real, that what is happening here is not coincidence, it's not chance, It is the hand of the one true God heavy upon their people. God is testifying to the reality of his existence. That's what he's doing. And it's gracious. He's showing him, hey, I'm real. This was a warning. You ought to worship me. I'm real. God graciously gives evidence of his existence. And can I tell you this? God still does that today. God has never... And today he has not left himself without a witness. God always gives a witness of his existence. He gives gives proof for his reality. 
He has witnesses to who he is and what he has done. But what kind of witnesses does God give us today? Well, how about the witness of creation? Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare, listen, the glory of God. Romans 1 says that what has been made give evidence that there is a God, a God of invisible attributes, a God of amazing power that truly does exist. So if you just go out and look around, you see evidence that doesn't whisper, it shouts. There is a God. All this came from somewhere. Someone did this. It was not random. It has design and purpose and meaning. And there's a God behind all of this. God has given witness to himself through the created order. That's why Romans 1 says that no one will have an excuse on the day of judgment. You see, no one can plead innocence because no one can plead ignorance. The created order shouts to the reality of God. Not only that, Romans 2 says God gives us a conscience, a, a sense of rightness and wrongness, fairness. We, we all have it. It's been marred in the fall. It's been marred by our sin nature. But we all have this idea of, of right and wrong. Even an atheist, if you go to them and steal their car, they'll say, that's not fair. Why is it not fair? If there's no God, if it's all just natural selection, the strongest survive, then I can take your car, Right? But they say, that's, that's not right. That's wrong to take my car. Why do they say that? Because all of us have in us a built-in conscience, which is a, a testimony to the reality of God. God has borne witness to himself through the Bible. We have the completed canon of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, which has proven itself to be true through hundreds and hundreds of years. It's proven itself through archaeological evidence, historical evidence, manuscript evidence. It's proven itself through fulfilled prophecies. The Bible declares the reality of a God. The, the existence of a God who is real, who created everything that created you and created me. The Bible is a witness to the, the, the reality of the one true God. God has revealed himself through his son Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says that God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. It is without question, even secular historians note that there really was a man that walked this earth named Jesus. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life as God on earth. And he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And, and the resurrection power of Jesus is seen through the growth of the kingdom of God even in today's time. God has left us a witness through his son, Jesus Christ. God never leaves himself without a witness. No one will plead innocence before God because no one can plead ignorance. But see, here's the problem. People look at all that evidence all around them and they don't respond to that light. The Bible says they suppress the truth in Romans chapter 1. They see it, but they don't like where that's leading them, so they suppress that truth. They don't respond to the light that God has given them. Let me tell you what I believe with all my heart. It's there in your notes. If people will examine the evidence with intellectual integrity, not a preconceived idea, but hey, intellectual integrity, 
they will be led to their creator. So wait, why do you believe that? Because you see it in the Bible. You see it in the Bible. See, in Romans 1, we see that people suppress the truth. They don't want to, they don't want to, they, they, they can't handle the truth. They don't, they, they want to suppress that truth and don't want to respond to that truth. But if you respond to the light God has given you, God will give you more light that eventually will lead you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts chapter 10, there was a God-fearer named Cornelius. He didn't know all about God. He didn't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he was responding to the light God given. He wanted to know the one true God. So what did God do? God sent him a witness through Peter. Peter preached the gospel. Cornelius got saved. When Cornelius responded to the light God gave him, God gave him more light. And if people will, will, will examine the evidence, if they'll examine it with intellectual integrity, God will give them more and more light until they come to hear and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. God never leaves himself without a witness. God, in this passage, spoke through cows to say, I'm not dead. I'm not weak. I am real, and I will be worshipped. And so we see the, the reality of God. But fourth and last, I want you to see just, the, just very quickly the holiness of God. The Philistines learned a lesson here. But there's some things the Israelites needed to learn as well. The ark goes back through these cows to Beth Shemesh in Israelite territory. And look what happens in verse 13. The people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a bad day for the cows, right? The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, which were the articles of gold, and put them on a large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. So the, the Philistines see the ark has returned. They're setting up a place to, to worship God and respond to the ark returning. The Philistines go home. Now look in verse 17. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. The five major cities of Philistia. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. Now look at verse 19. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Now what happens here? The Israelites get the ark back, but they disregard God's commandments concerning the ark. Numbers 4 is very clear. You don't handle the ark. You don't look into the ark as a holy object. You don't touch it. But they begin to handle it and look into it. And so God sends judgment. Look what happens in verse 19. He struck down all of the people... 50,070 men and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now there's some debate here. Some scholars believe it's 50,070 people. Some of the newer translations say that it was 70 people that died. The reason they say that is because there was a historian named Josephus, a Jewish historian, that said it was only 70 people. And they think, well, Beth Shemesh was a small village, so there certainly could have been, couldn't have been thousands of people there. It couldn't have been 50,000. It must be 70. Well, the problem with that is the Bible. The Hebrew text, all right, the original Hebrew, which is written, says 50,070. So there were over 50,000 people that died. And by the way, 
It might have been a small village, but when the Israelites heard the ark was back, do you think the people came to, to see it? Could you see the people gathering together to see the ark of the covenant that had returned? And they all get together and they treat the ark of the God, the ark of God casually, and God kills over 50,000 people. Devastating judgment. You see, God's people need to learn to not treat him casually. They disregarded Numbers 4. They disregarded the law. Did their own thing. God wanted to remind them, I am holy. I'm a God of perfection, righteousness. You don't treat me however you want to treat me. You don't come to me on your terms. You come to me on my terms. And they needed to be reminded not to treat him casually. You see, God defines the way we approach Him. God had told them, you have a sacrificial system, and only one person a year, the great high priest, can come into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is once a year. That's the way you approach me. That's the way you worship me. You don't make up the rules. I am God. I make up the rules. And God defines the way we approach Him, and that's still true today, which is it's amazing when you hear people say, well, all roads lead to God. You just, you just choose the road that you like best, that kind of fits you where you are in life best, the, part that, the, the road that appeals to you. And if you're just faithful on that road, if you're sincere, that road will eventually get you, get you to God. You know what that's saying? It's saying you choose the way to approach God. But guess who defines the way you approach God? God defines that, not us. And here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way. The truth, the life, no one, listen, no one, listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not saying that just because I'm a preacher. That's God defining the way to Him. Jesus said that. There's only one way to have a relationship with the one true God. We learned that in this text. You don't approach Him however you want to. You approach him through his prescribed means. And his prescribed means to know him today is only Jesus Christ. Because look at the question they ask. And I want to leave you with this. It says, verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And whom shall he go up, who, whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith, Jerusalem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up uh, with you. Take it up to you. We, we don't want to walk around here. But notice that question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And can I answer that question for you this morning? It's a question that needs to be asked today. If there is a God, if He is real, if He does exist, who can stand before Him? He's perfect, righteous, just. Holy, who can, who can stand before him? The answer is no one. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We've all rebelled against God. We all deserve wrath and judgment and punishment. Our sins separate us from a holy God. So who can stand before the holy God? The answer is no one. Unless. Unless their sins have been washed away. And that dividing wall of impurity has been taken care of by Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. You know why he said that? Because he's the only one that can wash away our sins. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. He rose from the dead and defeated the grave. So if we embrace Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, he will come into our life and forgive us of all of our sins. And, and because our sins have been washed away, we can then have a personal relationship with God. We can know him as Father and we can stand in his presence. The question the Philistines asked is still a relevant question for today. I'm sorry, the Israelites. Who can stand before the holy God of Israel? The answer is no one. Unless their sins have been forgiven by Jesus. This passage reminds us that God is holy and there's only one prescribed way to know him. There's only one exclusive way to be saved. And that is only through Jesus Christ. So this passage, these two chapters teach us a lot about God, don't they? They remind us of some crucial truths about him. Is God dead? The answer is no. He reminded the Philistines, he's not dead. As he reveals himself to our world today, he's saying, I'm not dead. If I had to sum this sermon up with one sentence, here, here's what it would be. You look there on your notes, the big idea. God is real. And we either worship the one true God or experience devastating judgment for our idolatry. That's it. That's what it's about. God is real. He's not dead. He's alive. And we either worship Him through Jesus Christ or we will experience the devastating judgment of God for worshiping something or someone else. 